despite the fact that I tweet lots of totally seemingly random stuff, I also have these sort of business tweets that are queued up with Edgar. These are a lot of the things that are in between cat photos, chair photos, and various interaction design rants. And rants about other things. But yes, I don't I don't really see Twitter as a business development tool, but I occasionally like to tweet things that are relevant to my business interests. So I sorted all my tweets ever by how many retweets and likes and stuff they got, and then I put them in a schedule. I repeatedly tweet, probably about once a week, that 1,000 customers is less risky than one employer. Right. Which it is. Right. And like clockwork, whenever this tweet goes out, at least two or three people write back, Sure, but it's getting to the 1,000 customers part that's risky. And I honestly don't know how in 140 characters to shake them and make them understand how ludicrous that is. Which is why we're sitting down on the microphone today. Correct. Prepare for many, many characters on how ludicrous that is. <laughs> All right. So let's, un- let's unpack that a little bit. When people see 1,000 customers, I can only assume that they look at that and say, well, that's a big number. I might not be able to hit that. That's risky. Whereas they know they can get a job because they've gotten jobs before and they know how getting a job works. Or a lot of people don't even see getting a job as selling themselves. Like they don't see it on the sales spectrum. You are correct. And of course they are wrong. Um, It is actually pretty impressive to go into a business and say, you should give me $60,000 this year. And yet people do it on the regular and they don't think anything of it after the first couple times, which are terrifying. Um, But it is actually risky because that one person can say no and that's it. They can also say yes and then change their mind when something, some other variable in the business changes or they're not happy with your performance. So we're talking about actual risk, about placement of liability, a single source of income is actually a larger liability than the exact same amount of income distributed across 10 people, 100 people, 1,000 people. One connection to your financial livelihood is easier to snip than 100 or 1,000 for sure. But people don't look at it that way because they look at having a job as the thing that everybody does. And so it seems safe just because they never question it. Until they wake up one day and get laid off and they don't have enough money in savings and they realize that they're in deep shit. So if we think about people's reaction to this tweet of yours, essentially suggesting that it is less risky, their reaction sounds to me a lot like I'm afraid versus anything to do with actual risk. Right. I can only assume that if they actually sat down and thought about it, that they wouldn't tweet that. Because what I write is objectively true, that a 1,000 customers is a much safer position than one. But people categorically don't think before they type words into Twitter. (laughs) I know, which is why we probably shouldn't bother discussing this at all. But But it makes me so irritated. But so, I mean, it's interesting. We can can tackle this in so many different ways. I mean, one of the ways that I describe what is different between selling yourself once to get a job and learning how to sell products is – the sort of the spectrum between where you have to convince one person through one or maybe a series of conversations that you have what they need, but you also have the ability to listen to what they need and sort of modify your so response. you're saying it's because you can react live to the situation? I think people that are good at job interviews are good at two things, doing at least a little bit of research beforehand to be able to go in and say, I understand what the company is and therefore I know what I can bring to you. Right. And they also have the ability to 
interact with whoever they're interviewing with and ultimately tailor that conversation appropriately. I've been in enough bad job interviews to know that when that dialogue is not going well, that that person isn't actually listening to the conversation that's happening. Or worse. I always enjoy reading Ian Landsman's tweets. Ian Landsman's one of our bootstrapper friends, and he's been hiring for I don't even know what position, but he just occasionally tweets out things like, if the website says you absolutely must include a cover letter, include a cover letter, and things like that. Like, oh, thanks for putting the wrong name on your cover letter that you clearly copied and pasted from a different company. <laughs> stuff like that, like really egregiously terrible stuff. So the bar is so incredibly so low. low. So to have someone who actually pays attention to your business needs and thinks about them and then thinks, okay, well, how can I slot in here and serve those needs and make money or save money? I mean, as someone who hires people, that's that's magical. Agreed. So there's a second stage in this. And this is one that I can think of very personally as people viewing as risky is when you go from having a single job to being a freelancer or a consultant. Yeah. So when people find out about my background, my history, my story, and they hear about the part where I quit my job to become a freelancer, they ask, you know, was that a tough decision? Still? Today? To this day. Really? And forever. And I get why, because when I think back to the time when I came home from work and I told my girlfriend at the time, who we were living together, I said, I think I'm going to quit my job and do the stuff that I do nights and weekends full time. And her initial response was, oh, my God, we're going to live in a box on the side of the road. (laughs) There's never been a time in my life where I've lived in a box on the side of the road. So so I think what people assume is the case when you go from a job to consulting. Right. Is that you sell yourself the same way you sell a job where all of the risk is loaded into one person. That makes sense. Right. I also think people uh, assume that. You go from one to the other. When in reality, what had been happening was I was getting my sea legs, so to speak, for freelancing nights and weekends. Right. T-Mobile time. (laughs) So what I was doing was some arithmetic saying, if I can make this much money in essentially my off work time, Mm -hmm. and I'm not even really working all that hard at it. How much could I make if I had enough time and energy to actually put effort into it on a full-time basis? And that's arithmetic. I agree. That is called math. And (laughs) the arithmetic led me to there are very good odds that I can do this full-time and make as much or more money than I'm making full-time. It's a different kind of work for sure, but I'd already proven to myself that I could do it. Right. And I think that's where people perceive risk is if they've never done it before, they don't trust themselves enough to say that I can do it. But they also don't bother looking around and saying, gee, how many other thousands upon thousands of people are doing really well this way? They act as if they're the first people ever to try freelancing or to launch a product, which is to me just silly. So uh, I was thinking about this the other day while I was driving And I was like, risk, risk, risk. Why do people not understand risk? How can I get people to understand risk? Because I've written so much about risk and I've tweeted about it. And I wrote a really funny blog post, uh, Petting Puppies with Peter Drucker. I don't think I remember this one. Oh my God, you've totally read this one. Remind me. Okay. So Peter Drucker is one of the sort of leading lights of management theory over the 20th century. And um, he actually pointed out that there are different types of risk. And he, in this 
book from I think it was like the 1980s specifically said that tech businesses do not act as if there is more than one type of risk. They assume that they must be the hostest with the mostest or the, the mustest with the fustest is what actually what he said, which was anyway, not funny, but that the only way for a tech business to succeed the tech entrepreneurs think is to come in and literally take over everything in an entire market. He's like, that's ludicrous. That is one strategy. It rarely works. It works in these situations. There are all these other strategies. Here they are. Here's a list. Here's what those look like. Sort of the winner take all mindset blinds them of exactly. any other potential outcome. Exactly. The, the fustest with the mustest was like a sort of colloquial slang version of the fastest with the most which was a sort of a military strategy of appearing first and with overwhelming force but that's only one military strategy there are many so he specifically made fun of tech entrepreneurs for this like way before the startup craze which is hilarious and do you have a theory about where that comes from in tech specifically like why 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 is that such a dominant mindset in tech i don't know i honestly don't know I'm in tech, I think, a little bit too much to know where it comes from. Certainly our, like, sort of startup narratives are like that. But, like, people said Apple was dying when Apple had was declining, yes, in the 90s. But Apple had so much freaking money. They're like, pray, Apple is dead, basically. It's like they have, like, hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars in cash just sitting in the bank, even then. Now it's billions. They are not going anywhere. And people are like, oh, they're dead. I don't know. I don't know. I was, as, as a teenager, I was reading these magazine articles and thinking, that doesn't make any sense. I don't know where it came from. I think a lot of it might come down to maybe too tight of an association with narrative stories that maybe we grew up with where there has to be yeah. a winner and a loser. You think maybe just because tech people are like simplistic in terms of humanity, or, <laughs> they're no, more bigger suckers for stories because I think maybe that's it. I, I think it just – I think it might be – I'm going to make some – I'm going to – Let's offend people. Let's We're going to offend some people now. <laughs> I think a lot of this roots in the fact that we got beat up and picked on as kids, <laughs> okay. and we were the loser. You know, We were thought of as the losers, and when we suddenly have the possibility of being a winner, of having an upper hand – that there can't possibly be any middle ground because there certainly wasn't middle ground on the losing side. Right. It was, I'm getting beat up or or what? I'm just getting beat up. So they're talking very Lord of the Flies. I think so. Arrested Development, not the TV show. Not the TV show. I think I think there's something deeply psychological in the underdog overcome story you mean like every single horrible superhero movie ever absolutely Ugh, they make me ill absolutely i think i think that's what's rooted in it. i think there's more to it i think there's uh, we could get a panel of psychologists in here and unpack <laughs> that more that that's got to be for another day but i think there's something <laughs> i like how I you're think, like let's do it for real another day <laughs> i another day I, I i think there's something really it's i think too you're right prevalent to not be something that significant it's true you know um you're right because i read a lot of other business stuff as well that's nothing to do with tech stuff and the stories tend to on average be far more nuanced yeah they do it's, it's not as simple as a jocks versus geek story which is no. essentially what i think most geeks boil a success narrative down to is somebody's going to win in the past it's been not me <laughs> and if it's going to be me i have to make sure that the other people lose which right. is how i will win 
Well, if you define success as beating everyone else in the entire world, um, you're not going to win. Right. No one wins that game. No one has in the history of the world ever won that game. Nope. Even the the Greeks, who for yeah. a while did a pretty good job in that direction, eventually lost. Yeah, plus there were all these continents they never even made it to. Right. So it was an illusion. Which brings back to risk. If you define your success scenario as defeating literally everyone and capturing 100% of the market, it will never work because no one has ever captured 100% of the market in modern times. The market's too big and it's too fragmented. But just not succeeding doesn't mean you failed, which I don't think people understand. Like, what is, what is risk exactly? What are people afraid of? They're afraid of not getting everything they wanted, but that's not risk. Risk is like permanent negative effects. Damage. Death. Bankruptcy. Like. Injury. Relative irreparable harm. Exactly. If you lose all your money in the stock market, that's a risk. But when you invest in the stock market, you know for a fact that your money will go down at some point. That is the whole point of the game, essentially. It will go down, and then hopefully it will go up again. So this is risk as part of a calculation, part of a management strategy. Right. So I think back to when I quit my job to become a freelancer – what I was doing in my head, I was doing arithmetic. I was doing my risk analysis essentially and saying – I could always get another job. That is my worst case scenario is I go back to a job. Right. Which I've already gotten a job once before so mm-hmm. I know I can. I also am more informed. I know what I don't want so I can be smart. Yep. I can actually – my worst case scenario could still be better than the job I'm in now if I'm unhappy. When you freelance, you learn a lot of business skills and self-management skills and like – service skills that most employed people don't have and when you then go back to the job market you can say well i actually ran my own business and i did not only the technical stuff or the design stuff but i also did customer care invoicing project management you know those kind of executive skills you need that's exactly how i got a job after i freelanced for like a decade i also didn't know this when i left but i within four months of leaving a job i ended up going back to the job as a consultant and making a multiple (laughs) because I had domain knowledge that I didn't realize how valuable it was inside that company. And they came back and they said, are you, are you available for a few hours (laughs) from, from time to time? We'll be nice. And I mean, I I left on good terms. Sure. Yeah. Otherwise that wouldn't have happened. Right. But the ability for me to know my value and also them to know my value gave me an upper hand. That is so common of a story, too, is when someone who's really good at their job leaves their job and then the company hires them back to consult. That is, I mean, it's basically a cliche. It's called a boomerang. Um, There's a word for it. I read stuff. I know these things. (laughs) Um, So, yeah, that's a good thing. Or, like, people going back to their former employer after having taken a stint away and getting, like, a 40% raise. You cannot get a 40% raise in-house, typically. But when you leave and come back, that somehow raises your, your market value in their eyes and... I mean, there are all these strategies you could do to be, to be smart about it. But people do stupid stuff. They, they set themselves up for failure, and then they fail, and they're like, uh, it's because it was risky. It's like, no, it's, be- it's because you made stupid choices, Let- let's be honest. Which is, I mean, there are a lot of scary things in this world. You, the listener, have you ever Googled the most dangerous room in the house? It's probably not the boiler room. I would actually imagine the kitchen because there's things that can – Catch on fire? Yeah, or cut you or burn you. I mean, I burned myself on my oven a bunch of times. I'm going to guess, though, that it's not the kitchen. It's not the kitchen. 22 million people in America every year are injured in their bathroom, resulting in 250,000 emergency room visits. How, what the hell About are you 15% doing in your of bathrooms? people are admitted to the 
hospital after these emergency visits. So we're talking 50, 60,000 people admitted to the ER because of the bathroom. Apparently, most are slip and fall in the bathtub. Okay, that for makes example. sense. You can kill yourself by slipping in the shower. Like, you really can. Young, healthy people can die from slipping in the bathtub or shower. Crack your head on the, on the tile or something. Uh, and you could drown or, or yeah, give yourself a, a concussion. Yeah, or worse. People fall and break their hips, elderly people. Uh, people injure themselves getting on and off the toilet. Mostly elderly people again, but as someone who's extremely clumsy, I could totally see <laughs> hurting myself. Uh, I once gave myself a bruise about six by four inches deep black when I, I slipped on a shower curtain and landed on the edge of the tub. All right. I'm starting to see the danger in the bathroom. Right. So people die in their bathrooms, and yet no one who goes into a bathroom is frightened unless they've already injured themselves. After a while, you'll start eyeballing the porcelain as, you know, your potential murderer. But um, most people are not afraid of their bathrooms. Or like, what? How many people die in car accidents in the U.S. every day? Like 50,000 per year or so. And yet people are not, for the most part, terrified of getting in their car when it's something that could actually kill them. Yeah, we're Dead dri- forever. We, get, we basically get into ex- <laughs> an explosion-powered weapon. Yeah, it's a murder can. <laughs> We drive around in a murder can. And then also we drive around and we check Facebook and text and stuff yeah. like that. Making the I can murder look can. at my phone for just a second. It's The traffic is slow. It'll be fine. Those are the last thoughts of more than a few people every year. But you tell those you tell people who get in their cars and spend like an hour and a half in their cars every day commuting with their risk exposure to death or dismemberment is enormous. And you tell them, maybe you should write a blog and build up a mailing list. And they're like, oh, too risky. <laughs> Well, you shouldn't do it in your murder can. Maybe you do it in the safety of your home basement or whatever it is where you keep your computer. Yeah, don't blog and drive, my friends. Don't blog and drive. Funnily enough, I listen to a podcast that a guy records while he drives to work. It's called Drive to Work. It's really cool. I wouldn't recommend recording that way, though, for safety. Um, You know, there are a million things you do every day that could literally kill you. So being afraid of, of starting a business on the side incrementally seems a little bit silly, but people just don't think of it that way. They're used to getting a job or they're used to the idea that they might get laid off or they're used to the idea that they drive everywhere all day. And so it's not scary. So that's my theory. It's because it's novel. I think in addition to that, the bi- the pop business world, not the business world, the pop business You mean world, like Fast Company? Fast Company, Entrepreneur, TechCrunch, etc. glamorizes risk-taking of entrepreneurs. Oh, yeah. And often the risks that are taken by those entrepreneurs are – not really risk in and of themselves, but it's a story. It's the, it's the same thing I was saying. It's the right. hero's journey. There's so much battle language in the startup world that people look at it and go, it must be bloody out there. Yeah. You know what's way bloodier than running a business? Gardening. Gardening is war. Those freaking squirrels eat all of my <laughs> plants, buds, before they even fruit. Okay? <laughs> war. Gardening is war. Gardening is war. It's literally trying to destroy you. Um, typically, there aren't that many market forces trying to actually destroy you. And there are industries that are, are bloodier and cutthroat. Oh, yeah. I mean, the work I've been doing the last 10 months in real estate, that's a battle. Ground. They're trying to kill you. And each other. You may yeah. not even be in it. You get close and they're throwing <laughs> daggers and knives and it's bizarre. And some industries like absolutely are. And even, but even <laughs> in that, like what is the actual liability other than lost time? Right. Which is frustrating. 
Absolutely. I mean, you can go bankrupt in real estate pretty easily if you do not play your cards right. But to your point, bootstrapping a business, starting a business that relies on you, your time, your built-in know-how, your ability and willingness to help other people is categorically much, much safer. I like that you brought up bootstrap because the biggest thing you can do risk-wise is to take other people's money. I mean, unless you're one of those people who's going to be like, I'm going to quit my job and have no savings and I'm going to have a, a one-month runway and I'm going to make my rent or not. I mean, that's dumb. But the, the second most dumb thing you can do is take money from other people. Because you're setting up an expectation before you've even started, in most cases, of what success needs to look like in order for you to be able to succeed. And you don't get to change it because it's someone else's idea of success. And by the way, they bought you or a share of you. And then you have to deliver or potentially they could kill your business without your permission. So in all of these cases, actual risk comes down to a measurable outcome that is outside of your control. Like the odds of something yep. bad happening, regardless of anything you do, something, you know, the bullet is hurtling towards you. It's going to hit you if you don't move fast enough. The trick here is to choose things where you can see the bullet coming long before and get out of the way. Or never be in the path of the bullet. I was going to say, I don't think there's always a bullet. I think sometimes people like go super fast and they, they set up a gun and they fire, pull the trigger and then they like run in front of the gun. <laughs> Whereas I'm like, I don't touch guns. <laughs> guns are dangerous. I yeah. mean, I, in real life, I actually do occasionally touch guns. I've gone skeet shooting and shot pistols and stuff. I don't own them. Right. But in my business, everything I do is low risk exposure. Um, and I think people don't believe me when I say that. I actually hate hate real risk. I loathe it. That's why I run my own business. People don't get that. What's a thing that people assume that you do that is risky that you actually know is not risky? Um, let's see. So I think people don't understand why I curse in writing and Twitter and public talks and stuff. They, they think that I might turn people off, but I'm not actually concerned if I turn people off. Uh, that's not a risk to me. That's just the nature of doing business. And to me, a much bigger risk is spending my entire life trying to fake a persona that would be extra effort and that I wouldn't like. That's a real risk. And that nobody would connect with. Right. Yeah. Feeling disconnected because you have to be fake sucks. So I never want to do that again in my life. So I say whatever I want pretty much. There are things I don't say, secrets. I don't reveal private facts about individuals, et cetera. Um, but I'm not not worried about cursing or if some people think that my responses are brusque or like oh uh, shutting down charm people thought was like crazy so quick background my husband and i started uh, a second software as a service called charm for customer support and relationship management not sales actual customer relationship management it was awesome and we were having intense trouble keeping it going because it was so demanding a customer support tool has to be online all the time and to make it work the way i designed it was technically quite difficult and so we actually chose not to run the business we chose to gracefully shut it down and people like could not freaking believe that they lost their minds not our customers our customers understood i explained it to them and gave them back their money people on hacker news and stuff had all these conspiracy theories why we were really doing it they could not comprehend that our reputations would not be horribly damaged and that people wouldn't hate us and that we wouldn't like fail at life just because we were shutting down a product that didn't work for us. You just said something really interesting that I think plays into people's sort of broken risk calculation is reputation. Right. 
the example you gave is people's unwillingness to hit publish on a blog post to build a mailing right. list. People are deeply afraid yeah. of the implications of their reputation. This goes back to the point you make all the time, which is you choose something that has no impact on your identity, positive or negative, which if the goal is to grow and evolve and do something better, your, your choice of inaction to avoid the threat okay. is by default choosing failure. Right. When people are afraid that people, other people will not like their blog post or whatever and they decide then not to post it at all. Keeps them from getting what they actually want in the first place. Right. They're choosing to fail. Yeah, absolutely. You miss every ball you don't swing for, whatever the sports metaphor is. That's the most sports metaphor ever of I'm ever going to I love to say. that you didn't even specify. I mean, you sort of did because it was swinging, so I'm going to guess baseball. It's baseball, right? Okay, I guess just it's check. Baseball. <laughs> what is it? You strike out every time you don't swing or, or something? I don't know. I actually baseball. think the funny thing is, is I'm pretty sure it was a Michael Jordan basketball quote that you turned into a baseball no, quote. No, I've definitely yeah. heard swing. You, you, you don't swing it in basketball, right? I'm just checking. No, you don't. It's, okay. I, I believe you miss 100% of the shots you don't take. That's I'm right. I'm pretty sure it was Michael Jordan in basketball. Yay. <laughs> I am 100% track record of getting sports wrong. <laughs> that's so, a risk I take. That's a risk you take. <laughs> so we've talked about a couple of things that we do to manage our risk. Because I think that's what this is about. Absolutely. It's, it's deliberately like designing your risk profile. So again, to my example of leaving a job to become a freelancer it was calculated it was the worst case scenario is i can't survive freelancing and so i go get a job which protects me from the theoretical worst case scenario which is i live in a box on the side of the road there would be have to be a lot of other failure cascades though before you actually literally ended up in a box though yeah i imagine there would be a drug addiction somewhere along the way they would take yeah you're like your parents would have to disown you or something for something right and they haven't done it yet so It'll probably have to be something pretty big. <laughs> He's nodding. You can't tell. You have to look at w what the real risks are. And so people bad about statistics like, oh, 96% of all new businesses fail. But if you Google those statistics, you'll find actually that a lot of people don't agree with them at all. Profile changes over time and it changes dramatically based on what industry um, and it changes dramatically again based on what type of business and the business structure and the age of the business and so on and like these facts aren't facts most facts aren't they're just opinions that are ladled with some data so you do some research and find out what is actually the likelihood of dramatic failure or risk or injury or bankruptcy or lawsuits and where possible avoid that so for example before you decide to create a business on the side check the contract you signed with your employer. That is an element of risk people forget all the time. Now, a real risk is that you might build a business and then discover that your employer owns it, at least in the United States. So you need to check your employment contract. Comparing that to a perceived risk of, if I put something out there, people will uh, tell me how terrible Everyone will like hate that. me across the entire internet. <laughs> I mean, you have to get comfortable with the feeling that you've done something not as good as you could have. That's, that's just the way that life is, period. So are you likely to end up in a box? No. Is your business likely to kill you? Exceedingly unlikely. I mean, if your business is, you know, bootstrapped murder bots, then maybe. 
um, you're far more likely to die as a pizza delivery boy than you are writing ebooks. Let's be honest. It's unlikely that you'll be sued into the ground for selling ebooks or time tracking software or whatever little thing that you start. If you write blog posts and people don't like them, they will not show up at your house and stone you. Uh, if people do not sign up for your mailing list, you will not be evicted from your home. So you just basically get realistic about what the consequences are. And uh, where possible, avoid the actual risks. Don't take out business loans. Don't start a business on credit cards. Do not violate your employment contract. Do not sell things that are dangerous. Do not become a drug dealer unless you're in a state where it's legal. In which case, go for it. You know, it's, it's basic stuff. I think the other side of it is when there is a risk that can be taken, see how much of the outcome of that risk is in your control. I think that's a little more of an advanced technique and maybe something you work up to, but looking at it and saying, how much influence over the outcome do I actually have? Right. Actually, I think a good metaphor for that is the conference that we run. That's a great example. Right. So when you run a conference, you run the risk that, for example, all of your speakers might not show up. You run the risk that you don't sell enough tickets to cover the prepaid cost of a venue. Also true. Or uh, that someone falls and breaks a leg and sues you, for example. Like there's a bunch of things that can really screw up your life if you run a a conference. Um, And so with our conference, we actually were just about to sign the contract on a venue for the first time we hosted here in Philly. And I called you and said i was actually at a conference you're at a conference i forgot that part i was literally about to write the check i wrote out five thousand dollars for the deposit for the forty thousand dollar venue catering bill and i was like why are we doing this after we'd fought so long to get them to give us a freaking date and i was about to secure that date and i called alex and i said do we do we really want to do it this way because that five thousand dollars was like risk incarnate to me and the idea that we would then have to commit to spending 40 grand at this hotel to host our event it wasn't the five thousand dollars it was what came next right it was the commitment and i being actually risk averse i was like i don't want to commit to spending forty thousand dollars at a hotel that feels wrong um and so i was going to call my lifeline and we agreed instead that we would host it at my office which worked out splendidly and was essentially free It also gave us a new set of constraints that allowed us to remove additional other risks. Absolutely. Including time commitments from both of us and our respective teams. It basically made something that people assume that running a conference is a very difficult thing. And it certainly can be. But we very actively chose conference on easy mode. Yes. In all of the ways that typically make it a... A, a painful experience you know so many of my friends run events that are truly excellent yes but the first thing they say at the after party <laughs> is i'm never doing that I'm again never doing that again and then they do and they always <laughs> do because once because our memories for those things are so terrible <laughs> um but we wanted to avoid that entirely and actually be able to enjoy the event that we were producing yes. during the event And that became the new framework for creating an experience that would not just be beneficial for our attendees, but make it worth it to us. And that's the kind of thing where you can take a passive choice of running a conference and then assume all of the risk that comes with running a conference. You can make an active decision to say, well, what if we ran something that is kind of risky in a less risky way? Right. The assumption is that a conference has a professional venue and that is an element of risk because you don't know how the venue runs their stuff or whatever. You have no idea 
you have no guarantees that everything will work out. I've been to multiple extremely expensive and professional conferences where, for example, the internet stopped working and my audio went out as that's, a speaker. That happens. That's a pretty common situation. It's common. And people pay hundreds of thousands of dollars for these venues and they, that still happens. So we took the, oh, well, when you run a conference, you do X. And we're like, hold on a second. Stop. How can we reduce the number of parts here? How can we make this easier? How can we make this actually less risky? And the same thing is true when you start a business. People think, oh, well, you have to save up three months of runway and then quit your job and then build your plane on the way down or whatever the metaphor is. What is the metaphor? X on the way down? Build, build a parachute? parachute? That makes more parachute. sense. Change engines in mid-flight. Build your engine. I don't know. There's some sort of aeronautics metaphor there also. <laughs> Amy queen of the metaphors not today nope never um you guys know what i'm saying though right when you say i'm gonna start a business it's a lot like i'm gonna run a conference there are all these assumptions that you are freighted with that are full of risk that you can eliminate if you want to if you sit down and you make a plan and you you choose which parts really matter to you and how can i work up to those incrementally while reducing my actual risk exposure i think this all really just ties back to that original tweet right yeah. which is this notion of Having a thousand customers is riskier than having one employer. And I, th I think we've done a good job of in far greater than 140 characters debunking mm -hmm. that. But the question then becomes, well, what do you, what do you actually do with that? Like, how can you start proving it to yourself? Because I think that's the key. You can sit here and listen to us talking all day long. But I think the reason that people react to that tweet is because they don't trust themselves to go get the first customer or the second customer, let alone a thousand of them. They don't trust themselves to even get to a thousand. The key is to start incrementally because when you design your business or your life, you can choose something that lets you start incrementally and you can build on that. And every additional blog reader or mailing list subscriber or sale that you make, you get closer to your goal. I think confidence also comes from small wins. So Absolutely. choosing your first step is something that you actually do have some proof that you can do. Like choose something that you do in your job and do it on the side. You know, talk about something Absolutely. you've already talked about and people understood it after you said it and turn it into a blog post and hit publish or take an email or a tutorial or something you put together and put it out under your own name. And when you press the publish button and you realize that the skies don't come crashing down on you and that you know people don't break into your house and murder you in your sleep, you <laughs> learn that mm, maybe I can do that again. Absolutely. And it's going to feel weird the first time you do it. Like that hesitation, totally natural, totally normal. I think it's Simon Sinek in his second book, Leaders Eat Last, talks about sort of the chemical releases in our body when good things are happening and when bad things are happening. The chemical reactions in our body that make us feel like that knot in our stomach when something bad is about to happen yeah. evolved as a protective measure when we heard actual threats like a saber-toothed tiger or a bear, right? <laughs> and so our bodies evolved to react to these potentially risky situations. And if it feels bad, we, we would run away. Flee! The issue is, is our body doesn't know the difference between hitting publish on a blog post and a saber-toothed tiger. And so we react as if it's the same amount of danger. We can't right. tell the difference. So recognizing that that feeling in your body is a totally natural reaction, but then saying, I don't care. I'm going to do it anyway. And then earning the trust in yourself by doing it and realizing that Cybertooth Tiger doesn't jump out of your computer screen and eat your face off. 
that you could do it again and again and again and again and again and again because like you know those thousand customers aren't going to show up on on day one it's one then two then three then five and so on and so on and so on so you're going to have to be able to do it lots of times so the best place to start is is now the biggest risk is to do nothing but i'd also like to add that feeling of fear does go away it gets less and less maybe not ever entirely like occasionally when i launch something i think hmm maybe people won't like this this time and you know what sometimes they don't that's okay i'm not actually scared of it it's just a hmm i don't actually know the future kind of feeling and you don't lose when they don't like it correct just the time i spent to create it that's it and then i i learn something valuable about my market every time so i'm gonna say it again the biggest risk is to do nothing <laughs> 